welcome everybody um, to this, the fourth of the uh, lectures in the series on getting to zero. Um, we're very, very pleased to have this week um, Rebecca Johnson from the Akron Institute. But before I introduce her, um, a few announcements. The first is that next week we will not be having um, a lecture here as part of this series, but we will instead be having a distinguished lecture by Dr. Mohammed El Arian, who is the Chief Executive and Co-Investment Officer of PINCO, which is one of the um, largest investment management firms. I just specialize in if I'm right about that. Uh, he is a very, very distinguished thinker on uh, economics, finance, and the financial crisis. I think he was one of the very early people uh, to predict that we were heading towards a financial crisis. And um, his lecture should be extremely interesting. He is speaking on the end of business as usual, navigating the new normal. And that will be held across the Sheldonian Theatre. Uh, it is preferable if you pre-register for that event, as spaces are limited. You can do so on the 21st Century um, School website. Um, if you just go to the website, I think there's a page that says registration, and you can register there, and that will cut down your queues and ensure that there is a place for you. So I do encourage you all to come along to that. Um, the next lecture in this series will be Dr. Patricia Lewis, who is joining us from the Monterey Institute uh, in California. Um, she's part of the James Martin Center for Non-Proliferation Studies, which is part of the Monterey Institute. And she will be speaking on a new approach to nuclear disarmament, learning from international humanitarian law successes. Now, having said all of that, we are, as I said, very grateful and very pleased to have with us today Rebecca Johnson. Uh, now, Rebecca has been a long-term uh, campaigner, um, thinker, activist on uh, peace, uh, disarmament, and international security issues. She is both the co-founder and the current director of the Acronym Institute for Disarmament Diplomacy. And she is also, in that capacity, editor of Disarmament Diplomacy Journal. Uh, and she's left a couple of copies of it on the table there. And I think you're happy for people to, to take those. They are limited, so please only take them if you, if you really do um, want to, uh, to use and to read it. There are also, she's left here, some copies of um, a paper of hers. Uh, which provides, I think, a background to the talk she's going to, to give today. Um, but Rebecca was, was prior to that, uh, she, I was pleased to see that she, um, she studied both physics uh, but also philosophy um, at Bristol University. Um, she has a, a long experience of, uh, of campaigning and advocacy. She was a Green and Common protester. Uh, she was also a member of the network called Women in Black. Uh, which I've just learned is, is not about alien encounter, <laughs> uh, uh, which is about women protesting uh, unjust conflict, I think, um, in locations around the world, from Palestine to, um, to Serbia, uh, to other locations around the world, um, by wearing black uh, as a symbol of, um, of protest and solidarity. Um, it sounds like a very, very interesting network. Uh, she's been formerly the uh, senior advisor to the Weapons of Mass Destruction Commission under Hans Blitz, as well as being uh, an advisor and board member on a number of distinguished governmental and uh, non-governmental agencies. And her topic today will be dealing with doctrines, time to outlaw um, nuclear weapons use. Rebecca. Thank you very much. Now I'm going to stay seated because I want you to be able to see um, the, the screen as I speak. I'm going to try to project my voice, but I'm going to look to you people at the back to wave. If I drop my voice below where it's comfortable to hear, please, 
please let me know. There's no point in sitting there wondering what my mouth is doing. If you can't hear me, please, please let me know. Um, well, so, um, as you heard, one of my uh, recent uh, roles was as the senior advisor to the Weapons of Mass Destruction Commission that was chaired by Hans Blix. And so my first slide is in fact a quote from that commission. Now, if you remember, that commission came out in the dark days, the really, the, 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 the depth of, I wonder whether, very rude to ask if you could. You'll be able to see it better, and others will too. Um, uh, the, the dark days of the Bush administration, um, and it was both seizing on the concern and interest that had been raised around weapons of mass destruction, which, as we know, was actually used as part of the the kind of casus belli. Though the, the, at least it was. Pre 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 presented to us as the reason and cause for going to war in Iraq. When people like Hans Blix were trying to say to um, George Bush and, um, and Tony Blair that there were definitely no nuclear weapons there, and that uh, to the extent that there might be any chemical or biological, they were residual, uh, residual from past programs um, and not, and could not pose the kind of threat that we were being told was the reason why we had to go to war. And so this commission used the term weapons of mass destruction, but actually in many ways was, was focusing on the regimes and on ways that we ourselves could remove the dangers from these weapons of mass destruction, but not by, by going into aggressive war. And this, for me, was one of the most important points that was being made which is, of course, and we've heard this from, you know, government leaders, I can remember Mrs. Thatcher constantly giving this refrain, you can't disinvent nuclear weapons. No, you can't. But you can outlaw them. And in outlawing them, you can control the materials um, that, that are used. And in fact, we have outlawed biological and chemical weapons. We have treaties that, that, that prohibit uh, biological and chemical weapons, and indeed we've made their use unthinkable. Now that doesn't mean that nobody thinks about using them, but it means that we have a legal construct that, that means that anyone who threatens or uses biological or chemical weapons knows that they have to face very, very, very heavy international penalties, and also that the international community will be united against them um, and, will, and will hold them um, accountable. Uh, and so what, what, what the Commission was saying here was recognising that to get compliance, to do the verification and the enforcement is going to be difficult and it's going to take, take time, but it can, with the requisite will, be effectively applied. And with that will, even the eventual elimination of nuclear weapons is not beyond the world's reach. Well, just to remind us of this, this is a picture I actually took from my living room window during the two or three years that I was living up in Scotland. I was living two miles away from the Faslane nuclear base, and this indeed is a Trident nuclear submarine. And you can see one of the things that I, about, about this picture, you can see how close the houses are, actually, um, and, and how close the other side of the loch is. So should anything happen to that submarine, you can see uh, how close 
And remember, this is 30 to 35 miles northwest of Glasgow, the major population centre for Scotland. So I just wanted to remind us with that picture of really what we're talking about here. And the second thing to give a context is that just three years after the Blix Commission was published saying that with the requisite will we could outlaw nuclear weapons, we have President Barack Obama in Prague giving that, that very powerful speech, first of all reminding us just one nuclear weapon exploded in one city would kill hundreds of thousands of people. And let's also think about the consequences for our global security, for our society, for our human rights, for our economy, for our environment, and ultimately, as he puts it, for our survival. And he also reminds us that if we think that the spread, and I would add, the retention of nuclear weapons is inevitable, then we are actually accepting that the use of nuclear weapons would be inevitable at some point. At least people like Kissinger, Henry Kissinger said that if we don't put a lid on the value attached to nuclear weapons now, we could see a use of nuclear weapons within the next 10 years. And then he made this very strong commitment that the United States would take concrete steps towards a world without nuclear weapons. And he also spoke of peace and security in a world without nuclear weapons. And I think that's also important, and I want to talk a little bit about that. But we don't just want to roll the clock back to, as I've had you know, critics um, say to me in, in, in uh, uh, lectures, you know, oh, but that looks like you'd be rolling the clock back to 1945. No, we do not want to make the world safe for more bloody wars with conventional weapons and more and more high-tech weapons, many of which now depend on, on satellites in space. If we're going to address getting rid of nuclear weapons, we have to recognize that to do that safely and securely, we actually have to transform international relations. Now that seems like a very big task, but actually I think that that process towards that task has begun, and it's partly being, being pushed and fueled by our recognition that climate change is gonna affect us all. It may affect some parts of the world more than others, but it's going to affect us all, and it is going to um, mean that to deal with it, we cannot deal with it in our little nation states. We have to deal with it in terms of, um, of, of global um, and, um, and essential um, activities. Sorry, I should have switched this off long before I even started here, so let me do that now. Um, so uh, this is part of the context of wanting to um, uh, get rid of nuclear weapons has got to be that we look to other means for defense, for deterrence, and for solving our global security problems. Again, this is just a reminder, this is what a Trident missile looks like when it is launched from a submarine beneath the oceans. Now, the main part that I want to talk about, and I'm willing to talk about broader issues of nuclear disarmament and how we would reach, uh, you know, build down our nuclear weapons, but the particular subject that I wanted to address as part of this seminar series, because others will be addressing some of the other issues, 
is the use of nuclear weapons, the role of nuclear weapons in doctrines, and in particular, the doctrine of deterrence, because our governments are constantly saying that we have nuclear weapons in order not to use them, in order to prevent others using them. And there's a kind of internal and rather circular logic to that that, 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 that is actually very problematic because in order by this internal logic to persuade others sufficiently so that you can believe that they would be deterred, you actually have to have a certain number of nuclear weapons. As far as Britain is concerned, you have to have uh, at least one fully loaded 48 nuclear warheads um, on missiles uh, on a submarine that is continuously at sea. That's one of the submarines has to continuously be at sea on patrol. Now there are of course leaders, including people like Des Brown, former Defence Secretary, who is really now questioning the at sea patrol kind of aspect of the deterrence. But as part of this internal logic, you have to demonstrate that you'd be willing and able to use nuclear weapons at a moment's notice. So they have to be on alert. They have to be ready to use. Um, and this, this, this whole you know, notion, and then they also try to make sure that they have public support, because after all, if they went out to you, out into to the public and said, do we want to replace Trident to have nuclear weapons that we might use? Remembering that each warhead on Trident is around eight times larger than the warhead that flattened Hiroshima and, uh, and Nagasaki. If they went to you and said, we have nuclear weapons because we might need to use them, I think the, pop, the, the, the popular horror about this, we wouldn't want them used in our name. But they come to us and say, we have a nuclear deterrent. We have an independent nuclear deterrent. You hardly ever hear a government representative even referring to the fact that Britain has nuclear weapons. Oh, no, no, no. We have a nuclear deterrent. And that's a kind of linguistic state of hand, and it's part of that internal logic. Because can you reasonably ask the question, does our deterrent deter? But we need to ask the question, do nuclear weapons deter? And then are there other instruments that might work better? Remember, I am not questioning whether deterrence has a role to play in defense and security. I think deterrence, the kind of deterrence that people use actually all the time in their lives, women certainly use it walking down, I live in Hackney, and I have to use deterrence a lot. But uh, the way, the means that I use, I don't carry a gun to do that. I don't even look as if I carry a gun. I don't even try to pretend I carry a gun. I use other kinds of means, political, diplomatic means for governments, uh, where we should actually be looking to provide both dissuasion and what is traditionally thought of as, as deterrence. So here I identify three kinds of, 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 of elements, the, what I call the voodoo dependency. Because the problem is that they have so much internal logic <coughs> that they can't ask those essential questions in the same way as someone who believes fundamentally in medicine that comes from witch doctors or from voodoo. And the fact is that Belief is maybe part of that process, so as long as they're not really ill, it can appear to be fulfilled. The problem is when there's actually a threat. And the problem now is that there are actually growing threats 
from our having nuclear weapons, our seeking to acquire more nuclear weapons, our seeking to replace nuclear weapons, and the proliferation drive that as long as some states or alliances will cling to nuclear weapons and justify their deployment and doctrines for use, and proclaim their value for security, deterrence, or power projection. Let's remember the role that that plays also, and particularly I think that that underlies um, both status of power projection, I think very much underlay India's drive to actually come out in the open, demand that it had recognition as a nuclear weapons state, and I think that this is probably behind um, the thinking for Iran. Um, and so, um, the uh, other aspect uh, is that, um, you know, the numbers are very important, of course. Reducing the numbers is part of the necessary task of reducing nuclear dangers, since it's obvious that the fewer the nuclear weapons that are built, deployed, transported, or stored, the fewer opportunities there will be for nuclear accidents, terrorism, or indeed for use. Reducing reliance on nuclear weapons as a tool of policy or deterrence is the other critical part of the equation. So as long as some states or alliances cling to nuclear weapons and proclaim their value, then others are going to want them. And just to remind ourselves again, this photograph was taken uh, in Nagasaki a few days after the bombing. These are two uh, eucalyptus trees uh, that were standing at the entrance to uh, a shrine, a Shinto shrine, um, just over a kilometre away from the epicentre. If you, some of you may know the epicentre was pretty much the Catholic cathedral in, um, in Nagasaki. That was a prominent building and that uh, was the epicentre. This shrine was about a kilometre away. <coughs> now, many of you are aware that the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is regarded by very many as the fundamental treaty governing non-proliferation and also enshrining an obligation, although it's very, very uh, weakly worded, to nuclear disarmament in its Article 6. This is the fundamental treaty since 1968 that has, has, has um, has governed nuclear non-proliferation, but it divided the nuclear hats, five states identified as having nuclear weapons who had this specific obligation to disarm, and the other states which had to join the treaty and could only join the treaty as non-nuclear weapon states. And in fact, there are 189 uh, states parties, so there are 184 of those are, have joined as non-nuclear weapon states, and only one or two of them have, or perhaps a small handful, are, are where there have been over the years concerns about their compliance. Certainly we, we have concerns about Iran at the moment. North Korea withdrew from the treaty, or at least announced its withdrawal in 2003. But because of the way it was set up, India, Pakistan and Israel, which developed nuclear weapons outside the treaty, do not, are not governed in any way by this treaty. Now, the treaty was indefinitely extended in 1995, and then in the year 2000, um, the principles and, and objectives that were part of the indefinite extension in 1995 were negotiated on in more detail, partly because a lot of the non-nuclear weapon states said, hey, you haven't done enough on disarmament. Um, now, the plan of action or the practical steps 
resulted in 13 paragraphs, which were both principles, objectives, and specific steps. Now, I've highlighted, highlighted actually just one paragraph of that. The others include things like the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty and fissile materials and so on. But I particularly wanted to highlight this, which was one paragraph that had six elements, because these were very specific practical steps on the nuclear weapon states. And as you can see from the two I bolded, they were required to reduce the operational status. Now, the word de-alerting was not used because this was a process of negotiation, but that was what was understood. And also to reduce the role so as to minimize the risk of the use of nuclear weapons. So they negotiated this, the nuclear weapon states, but specifically with seven representative non-nuclear weapon states known as the New General <coughs> Coalition, which included major states such as South Africa, which had given up its nuclear weapons, Brazil, which got very close to having a nuclear, uh, <coughs> certainly had a nuclear weapon program, never actually made nuclear weapons, and then gave them up. Um, other countries like uh, Ireland and Sweden from Europe, um, Mexico, also Egypt from the Middle East, um, and um, uh, New Zealand. So you had a kind of cross-section of, of, of countries there. And they negotiated with the nuclear weapon states. The nuclear weapon states agreed to these, and these were given consensus. And yet we still have a situation where all bar none of the nuclear weapon states still rely on deterrence. The um, uh, four of them, the NATO three, US, France, and the UK, still keep open the option of the first use of nuclear weapons, even in a conflict where the adversary has not used nuclear weapons. China has a no first use policy and a much smaller, um, or, or relatively smaller arsenal, probably thought to be about the same now as, as the UK arsenal, but China relies on second strike deterrence. Now, the subject that I'm looking at uh, is going to be the use of nuclear weapons. So I just wanted to look at a few other examples. Going right back, I mentioned earlier that we have a biological weapon convention, we have a chemical weapon convention. These are not perfect instruments. They are not fully universal, and they do not yet have fully effective verification. But they are prohibitory standards. They provide for both the prohibition and the elimination, and in effect the abolition, of those weapons, they, you can see the dates, 1972-1993, but way back, just after the First World War, the Geneva Protocol, having seen the effect of asphyxiating uh, gases used in that First World War, actually prohibited asphyxiating poisonous gases and liquids, and also the use of bacteriological weapons. And actually, in the Second World War, this largely held, interestingly, it held in terms of combatants. So, you know, the Nazis didn't use them against British soldiers or French soldiers, but they did use them against the Jews and those that they put into the gas chamber. So they used them against civilians. And I think we have to recognize that the gas that was used in the concentration camps was a chemical weapon. Similarly, Japan actually made various experiments using both bacteriological and, um, and chemical um, um, weapons against Chinese, against the Koreans in, in particular kinds of, of experiments. So one of the things that we have to do is put these things together. And 
and make sure that we recognize that if we have a prohibition on the use of nuclear weapons, we have got to recognize it has to apply in peace and in war. This is another concern that I have about the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty because that is presented by uh, the US and by Britain and France uh, because of the NATO sharing arrangements in Europe by which control would be transferred to German, Dutch, Italian uh, pilots to the, of US weapons that would be on German, <coughs> Dutch, or Italian airplanes. Therefore, it's on record by the United States and Britain at the time that the treaty was negotiated that the interpretation was that it would not apply in wartime. Now, the implications of that are really very serious, and we saw those implications in the ways that the, gas, the Geneva Gas Protocol was regarded as not applying against civilians. Now, I'm going to come on to that a bit more. Now, the other ones that I wanted to draw attention to is there's a treaty that has a very long name, but it's usually called the um, Inhumane Weapons Convention, uh, agreed in 1981. It has several different kinds of protocols, and they ban or restrict the use of various kinds of weapons, fragmentation weapons, laser, and so on. Now, there were attempts to get a bans of landmines and of cluster munitions through that treaty, through protocols, and that became bogged down. So what did a group of uh, progressive states and civil society, and there was a partnership between civil society and states and governments, they went outside that treaty, but nevertheless in such a way as being seen to reinforce what that treaty on inhumane weapons is essentially about, and they negotiated the Mine Ban Treaty in 1997, otherwise known as the Ottawa Treaty, as it, as it followed a, a, a process known as the Ottawa Process because Canada was one of the key figures in that. And then just very, very recently, <coughs> the uh, Cluster Munitions Convention took a leaf out of the Ottawa Process of, of the Ottawa Treaty. And this one was then initiated by Norway, again, a group of states and a group of, of, of NGOs. So this shows you what you can do. Now, why do I focus on banning use? I argue that it's an important step towards nuclear abolition and towards getting to zero. My reasoning is that the real tipping point between, and you, you know, it's a partly analogy, if you, if you like, of smokers who recognize that they need to cut down, but haven't yet rec recognized the need to become non-smokers. There's a qualitative difference there. And, <clears throat> you know, so, as nuclear arsenals are reduced, the real tipping point will come when the nuclear weapon states actually understand and demonstrate that there's no role for nuclear weapons in their doctrines and policies. And I, I argue that an early step, and one that now needs to be pursued, is to recognize in law the widely accepted fact, and here we are in the ethical center, an ethical understanding that any use of nuclear weapons would in fact be a crime against humanity. And don't be fooled by the notion that there are some weapons out there that are given the label tactical nuclear weapons. I have it on authority from people making the British nuclear weapons at Ormaston, for example, any use of nuclear weapons, however small, would be strategic. It would cross the threshold. Uh, and, it, uh, and the reasons why these would be a crime against humanity is that they're indiscriminate, they 
they would annihilate competence, sorry, annihilate non-competence as well as competence. They would destroy habitats and our environment on a massive scale. They would have far through their radiation effects, far-reaching and long-lived effects geographically and in terms of time. We don't know what these would go down through generations. Three weeks ago, I was in Hiroshima and I was still meeting people who are 30 years younger than me, who have higher rates of cancer and birth defects because their grandparents, their grandmothers in particular, were um, exposed during the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. Banning the use um, would provide legal clarity consistent with international humanitarian law. Also, would universalize security assurances. Now, I'm going to talk about those in a moment. Um, what I argue that we need now is a new approach to <coughs> security assurances <coughs> to provide greater confidence and security for everyone. And they have to have specific and shared rights, obligations, and responsibilities. And they also, it would reduce the role and the value of nuclear weapons, which I've talked about. Now, <coughs> let me actually move to security assurances. No, let me go back, because I'll get out of, of, of sync here. Um, and so, in reducing the role and value of nuclear weapons, this is where we get would, would move much more to an understanding of peace and security in a world without nuclear weapons. Now, declaring nuclear weapons use a crime against humanity does not eliminate all nuclear dangers overnight. But I think it would reduce the attraction of nuclear weapons for proliferators and probably for terrorists too. And it would certainly reduce the value and attraction for the existing nuclear powers. It would also provide legal mechanisms for holding not only the perpetrators of a threat or attack with nuclear weapons, but the suppliers, the traffickers, the, the, the whole chain that leads up to someone somewhere detonating a nuclear bomb. They would be held personal, <coughs> personally to account and could find themselves in the International Criminal Court, um, as well as governments or non-state leaders. And so, in, by so doing, this would really make a big difference. And I just wanted to go back a little bit to remind us that this is not a new idea. Back in 1961, there was a UN General Assembly declaration on nuclear weapon use that argued that it would violate the UN Charter. But much more relevantly, perhaps, and more importantly, um, because it was underlined in the post-Convort era by the International Court of Justice in its landmark ruling of 1996. Now, the important thing is the NPT addresses possession and proliferation. It does not address use of nuclear weapons per se. But the ICJ deliberated on this question and <clears throat> It found that in almost all situations, the use of nuclear weapons would violate international humanitarian law. Now, if you look at, at these, it's identifying that there's no authorization for use, but there's also no specific universal prohibition, although they couldn't agree that unanimously because there were at least three <coughs> of the judges actually felt that the whole body of international law amounted to a specific and universal prohibition. <laughs> but unanimously they found that a threat or use of force by means of nuclear weapons that would contradict the UN Charter 
and failed to meet the requirements of Article 51, which was the self-defense requirement, would definitely be unlawful. And unanimously, they also argued that any such threat or use would have to be compatible with a whole set of requirements um, about international law and humanitarian law. Now, they had an equivocal, and this is the one that gives most difficulty, it gets quoted back <coughs> to many of us by governments. Because on the raw numbers, it looked as if the court split seven to seven, and then this was adopted by the president's casting vote. But if you look at it and you look how the vote actually took place, 11, sorry, 10 of, of the votes actually were saying that they did not believe that there were any circumstances in which the use of nuclear weapons could be considered lawful. So only four actually held to this question about extreme circumstances of self-defense in which the very survival of a state would be at stake. And if you look at it, it actually is, you know, they prevaricated here and say, in view of the current state of international law and of the elements of fact at its disposal, the court could not conclude definitively. So this did not actually say, that ruling did not say what many governments presented as saying, which is that a state has the right to use nuclear weapons if it believes the survival of that state is, is, is at stake. And yet this is now the core underpinning of British nuclear deterrence. Uh, they now use a phrase that actually refers to extreme circumstances and so on. But this is what Judge Bajawi, Mohammed Bajawi, who was the president of the ICJ at that time, and actually cast that casting vote. And, uh, and again, I think we, let's look at this carefully. He reminded us of intransgressible principles of international customary law, particularly proportionality and discrimination, which means that, that weapons have to make a distinction between combatants and non-combatants. And then he said, though not explicitly and specifically forbidden by international law, nuclear weapons are nonetheless weapons whose effects are clearly constant, contrary to certain prescriptions of that body of, uh, of the rules of humanitarian law. And he then said, the direct prohibition of the use of nuclear weapons as such is in a legal gray area. It's necessary to put an end to this regrettable legal vagueness. So that was the president of the ICJ speaking at a conference in the um, margins of the Non-Proliferation Treaty in, in um, uh, 2007. Um, also, and just for the sake of completeness, the final opinion from the ICJ was the unanimous opinion that actually said that there exists an obligation to pursue in good faith and bring to a conclusion a, a strengthening of the Article 6 language on nuclear disarmament, saying pursuing good faith and bring to a conclusion negotiation leading to nuclear disarmament in all its aspects. So the need to tackle use and doctrine. <clears throat> I argue that proliferation of nuclear terrorism would be better prevented if the use of nuclear weapons were recognized as a crime against humanity. This would turn a widespread ethical understanding into a legal norm. I also argue that it does not require a multilateral treaty to be negotiated. 
If enacted through the UN Security Council or the International Criminal Court, it would provide non-discriminatory, positive and negative um, uh, security assurances for all. And this is where I get to talk about it. negative and positive, because these, this is kind of jargon words used in the context of diplomacy and the non-proliferation treaty. But what negative security assurances are is a promise by the nuclear weapons states that they will not use, attack, or threaten non-nuclear weapon states with nuclear weapons. And then positive security assurances are that the nuclear powers would come to your assistance if anyone else were to threaten or attack a non-nuclear weapon state with such weapons. And there are two UN Security Council resolutions dealing with this. Now, at the time that the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, was being negotiated in the in mid-1960s, many, many non-nuclear weapon states tried to get the promise that they would not be attacked with nuclear weapons, these, particularly the negative security assurances, into the treaty. Their argument, and I think it's a, a very natural argument, is that they were going to give up the, this major weapon system that the nuclear weapon states were saying that they needed for deterrence and, and, and security and all kinds of things. If they were going to give that up, then they needed to have a promise from those that were going to retain them that as long as they had them, that they would not attack them. And that seems like natural understanding. The nuclear weapons states refused to put that in the treaty. Instead, in 1968, at the time of agreeing the treaty, they had a resolution number 155. But that, and remember, that was the Cold War, we had the Warsaw Pact, we had NATO, both of which ha had kind of satellite states, part of their spheres of influence, which had nuclear weapons on their territory. Um, belonging to the major nuclear weapon states of the Soviet Union and the United States. So these all had, were very, very conditional. Now, they became a little bit less conditional when we got to 1995. And again, they had to agree another Security Council resolution at the time of 1995 in order to be able to get indefinite extension of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. These are very bound up. This use of nuclear weapons is very bound up in the minds of those, particularly the non-nuclear weapon states joining the NPT, that this should be there, that they shouldn't have to even worry about the risk of the threat or attack with nuclear weapons. Now, many of the states, in fact, the entire Southern Hemisphere and several sections of the Northern Hemisphere are part of nuclear weapon-free zones, and there are five currently, Tlatelolco, Rarotonga, Pelindaba, Bangkok, and, and Semipalatinsk. Um, of which um, Bangkok and Semipalatinsk have not yet fully entered into force. And the nuclear weapon states, as part of protocols to these treaties, have agreed much more unconditional security assurances, or much more widespread security assurances to the states within these regions than they have agreed under the Security Council resolutions. But it still isn't good enough, because a big problem with that, and what I argue in that article that that I wanted to, to be circulated, is that we actually need to think outside the box because it shouldn't just be up to the nuclear weapon states to promise to come to our aid. This should be an obligation on all of us now, in the same way as there is now a, a UN Security Council Resolution 1540 from 2004, which actually says that 
governments have to make it international, put it into their own domestic national laws, a responsibility on all of us not to supply uh, terrorists with any means by which they might acquire or use uh, uh, any weapons of mass destruction. Um, and, <clears throat> and so one of the arguments I make is that we need to universalize security assurances in two ways. One is through prohibiting the use altogether, making it a, a crime against humanity. And that would, would, would apply equally to individuals involved and to governments involved. And the other side is that it would make all of us responsible, not only for not having assisted any perpetrator, but for actually assisting in um, both finding and bringing to justice any perpetrator or the, the, the route, you know, the supply networks by which they they acquire these weapons and th threaten or use them, and also um, uh, to, um, to, to make sure that, that they're brought to justice, and also, if possible, to come to the aid um, of, of any, any city or, or, or country that has been threatened or, or attacked with this. Um, now, <clears throat> possible approaches could be through the Security Council, or it could be to amend the definition of a crime against humanity in the 1998 Rome Statute. That's the statute that established the International Criminal Court. Um, or we could build up, and here's a role for civil society, build up by getting individual countries to make uh, unilateral declarations that they regard any use of nuclear weapons to be a crime against humanity. And that could build up a kind of critical mass by which then there becomes an embedded norm, and through the embedded norm it becomes um, embedded into customary international law. So now I do argue that what we really need when with, you know, if you want a world free of nuclear weaponism, as Obama says he wants, then really at this point you need to start thinking about the treaty, all the treaties, <clears throat> that will codify the obligations, the prohibitions, the verification, the compliance requirements, the enforcement, and so on, to accomplish this safely, securely, and in time. And we call that a nuclear weapon convention. Now, a group of, of scientists and, and engineers and diplomats, um, mostly from civil society, myself included, started working on a draft or a model treaty back in the mid-1990s, and this was really just as a resource. We're not saying this is the treaty to negotiate, but it has been published with a lot of debates about some of the key elements of it. What we're saying <clears throat> is that uh, when governments say that if you talk about a nuclear weapon convention, you're undermining the NPT or that uh, it's premature, we argue that on the contrary, a nuclear weapon convention will provide the mechanisms, the processes, the verification and the practical timeline to actually fulfill the NPT. Notable, it's Article 1, Article 2, and Article 6. Um, and we also argue that you need to start raising the issues of use and the need to begin thinking about how to get the concept of a nuclear weapon convention onto the negotiation, uh, a negotiating agenda with governments, especially in the run-up to the 2010 NPT Review Conference. But it obviously needs to go beyond that. And the... <clears throat> Um, the argument here is it takes time. You know, the concept of a comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty was being pushed up the negotiating agenda in the 1950s by civil society. 
It was finally concluded in 1996, and for a number of very unfortunate reasons, it's not yet um, entered into force. So finally, I come to the end of, of, of my main part because I now want to kind of hear your questions and maybe have some comments coming in. This is the doomsday clock of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and I was privileged to be on that board, the board of the Bulletin for six years, and indeed um, a vice chair of it for three of those years. Uh, it's actually now moved slightly further forward. It's actually five minutes to midnight now. My photograph is still at seven. Um, so uh, just to remind us, we really don't have a lot of time in the wide scheme of things to address the security challenges and threats from nuclear weapons in a way that actually makes sense and leads us towards dealing with nuclear dangers and uh, bringing, bringing ourselves closer towards peace and security of a world without nuclear weapons. Thank you.